Welcome to Christopher Wynne's I Never Knew That, opening a door onto a world of knowledge, adventure and surprise, as we travel around Britain and Ireland in search of entertaining stories and fascinating facts that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. Christopher Wynne, author of the I Never Knew That book series about the countries and peoples of Britain and Ireland, and I will be your guide as we travel around the regions of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, meeting friends along the way and learning about the people and places that make these beautiful islands the most magical place on earth. We begin our journey in England, described by William Shakespeare as this blessed plot. What is it about the English countryside? Why is its beauty so much more than visual? Why does it touch one so? Asks Dodie Smith in I Capture the Castle. In The Remains of the Day, Nobel Prize-winning author Sakazuo Ishiguro describes the English landscape as the most deeply satisfying in the world. There'll always be an England where there's a country lane, sang Dame Vera Lynn, the force's sweetheart, wherever there's a cottage small beside a field of grain. Dr Johnson, who gave us the English dictionary, dreamed of being freed from his duties to spend my life driving briskly through England in a post-chase. <laughs> well, let's live Dr Johnson's dream for him. In this episode, we will drive briskly through the south of England, taking in a mountainside house in Surrey, where larks ascend, a desert in Kent, where a famous film director lived out his final days, a beautiful ancient hilltop town in East Sussex with an enviable literary heritage, the loveliest room in the world, in a castle in West Sussex, the spot in Hampshire where a naval hero was felled in his moment of triumph, and a medieval moon rocket on the Isle of Wight. Stop 1. Leith Hill, Surrey. When you stand at the top of the tower on Leith Hill in Surrey, you are standing at the highest point in south-east England, with a view over some 13 counties, and from here you can see south across the Weald to the South Downs and the sea. Gatwick Airport is to the east, Heathrow to the west, while to the north are the London Eye, Wembley Stadium Arch, the Shard and the skyscrapers of the city and Canary Wharf. Leith Hill itself is 965 feet high, 294 metres if you must, while the tower is 64 feet tall, 19.5 metres, raising Leith Hill above a thousand feet and making it the nearest mountain to London, in old money. 
The tower was built in 1765 by Richard Hull, with the express intention of making Leith Hill a mountain. And Hull is buried underneath the tower, and as he was a man who liked to think ahead, he was allegedly buried upside down, so as to be the right way up for when the world has turned at the end of days. He lived at Leith Hill Place, an early 17th century house on the slopes of Leith Hill, which Hull had rebuilt in Palladian style. You can see it from the tower. In 1847, Leith Hill Place became the home of Josiah Wedgwood III and his wife Caroline, née Darwin. She was the sister of Charles Darwin, the evolutionist, and he would often come to stay at Leith Hill Place and conduct experiments in the grounds with worms and such like. Ah, a worm! Research that contributed much to his final best-selling tome, The Formation of Vegetable Mould Through the Actions of Worms. Intriguingly, Josiah Wedgwood III and Caroline Darwin, husband and wife, were both grandchildren of the famous potter and abolitionist Josiah Wedgwood I. How so, you ask? Well, it seems that an awful lot of Wedgwoods married an awful lot of Darwins, and it all began in the 18th century with the first Josiah Wedgwood, the famous potter, and the physician, poet, and philosopher Erasmus Darwin. They were great friends and fellow members of the Lunar Society, a dining club of prominent 18th century luminaries from the worlds of industry and science, who we will learn more about in a later episode. Now follow me closely here, for the story gets complicated. Josiah Wedgwood's daughter, Susanna, married Erasmus Darwin's son, Robert. And Robert and Susanna had a son they called Charles, who grew up to be Charles Darwin the evolutionist. So Charles Darwin was a grandchild of Josiah Wedgwood the potter. Charles Darwin married his first cousin, Emma Wedgwood, the daughter of Josiah Wedgwood II, son of the potter, and she was thus a grandchild of Josiah Wedgwood the potter, like her husband Charles. Charles Darwin's sister, Caroline, also a grandchild of Josiah Wedgwood the potter, also married her first cousin, her sister-in-law Emma's brother, Josiah Wedgwood III, son of Josiah Wedgwood II and grandson of Josiah Wedgwood the potter. So basically, Josiah Wedgwood the Potter's grandchildren all married each other. Got it? Good. Anyway, Josiah Wedgwood III and Caroline Darwin, owners of Leith Hill Place, had many children, and one of their daughters, Margaret, married the Reverend Arthur Vaughan Williams. Margaret and Arthur had a son called Ralph, who grew up to become a famous composer. Arthur sadly died when Ralph was only three, and Margaret brought Ralph and his brother and sister to live at her parents' home, Leith Hill Place, where they all lived very happily. Ralph eventually inherited the house, and in 1945 he gave it to the National Trust. Local legend has it 
that the house had long been neglected, and that when the people from the trust went in for the first time, they found rooms piled high with priceless pieces of Wedgwood pottery. Today, the National Trust occasionally put on concerts of Ralph Vaughan Williams' work at Leith Hill Place, and to sit in the drawing room there, listening to a performance of his sublime composition, The Lark Ascending, frequently voted Britain's favourite piece of music, while gazing out at the Wealdon view across the garden where Vaughan Williams may very possibly have heard a lark ascending for the first time, is one of life's unforgettable pleasures. Stop 2. Prospect Cottage, Dungeness, Kent We now head east into Kent, England's oldest county, for something completely different. In the furthest south of Kent lies Romney Marsh, an empty, wild, windswept world of wetland, marsh and meadow, laced with dikes and ditches, and dotted with sturdy sheep and lonely churches, and haunted by tales of smuggling and dark deeds. Right at the southernmost tip is Dungeness. 5,500 acres of sand and shingle, one of the largest expanses of shingle in the world. It's classified as a desert, the only one in Britain, but unlike most deserts, Dungeness has its own railway station on the Romney, Hythe and Dimchurch Light Railway, billed as the smallest public railway in the world. The area is scattered with isolated homes and tumble-down cottages, some made from old railway carriages, all lived in by fishermen or those who rarely want to get away from it all. And one of the loneliest and quirkiest homes on Dungeness is Prospect Cottage. A tiny, Victorian, black-painted, clapboard fisherman's hut that was the home of film director Derek Jarman from 1986 until his death in 1994. He moved there when he wanted to escape London after the death of his father and soothed his soul by creating a garden full of salt-loving plants and ornaments made from driftwood and washed-up debris. And one of the timber walls of the cottage is decorated with the words of a poem by John Donne called The Sun Rising, which begins... Busy old fool, unruly sun, why dost thou thus through windows and through curtains call on us? Prospect Cottage is the most extraordinarily peaceful place, disturbed only by the sounds of the wind and the sea and the birds. And indeed it truly feels like you are at the end of the world. A perception somehow only added to by the surreal, menacing presence of Dungeness Nuclear Power Station, which casts its eerie shadow across the bleak, shingled flatlands. Spine-tingling. Stop 3. Rye, East Sussex. 
Next, we head for East Sussex and the captivating little town of Rye, spread across a rocky eminence, peaked by a pointed church tower and platted with narrow winding streets that tumble down to what long ago was the sea. As you approach it across the marshes, Rye looks for all the world like a giant tea cosy, which is apposite, for the tea shops of Rye, where I have spent some of my happiest times, are legendary. The little church square at the top of the town, with its cobbled roadway and cobbled churchyard wall, must be the prettiest town square in England. Lined with higgledy-piggledy half-timbered old houses, leaning on one another as they jostle for space. In one of the little lanes leading away from the square is Lamb House, where George I stayed after being driven ashore on nearby Camber Sands during a storm, and later where the American writer Henry James lived after being driven out of London by the failure of his only attempt at a stage play. James wrote two of his most successful novels at Lamb House, the Wings of the Dove and The Ambassadors. Another author who lived in Lamb House was E. F. Benson, best known for his Map and Lucia stories about two upper-middle-class ladies vying for social one-upmanship in a town called Tilling, which was based on Rye, with Lamb House becoming Miss Map's residence. The stories were twice adapted for television, most recently by the BBC, with Miranda Richardson and Anna Chancellor as Map and Lucia, and both adaptations were filmed in Rye and at Lamb House. The Benson family, it must be said, were highly talented. E.F.'s father invented the much-loved Service of Nine Lessons and Carols, and later became Archbishop of Canterbury, while E.F.'s brother, Arthur, wrote the words of Land of Hope and Glory. Around the corner from Lamb House is an ancient black-and-white smuggling inn, the Mermaid, dating from 1420, and the most gorgeous old building in a road simply bursting with gorgeous old buildings. The road past it slopes down to the harbour, opening up a fine view to the far hills. But wait! What is that on the horizon? Only a row of hideous modern houses bang in the eye-line, despoiling, in as egregious an example of bad planning as you could ever wish for, what should be the most picture-perfect view of medieval England. If you find yourself shaken, as I always do when I contemplate this act of vandalism, then I recommend that you climb up to the top of the church tower, past the old church clock dating from the 16th century and one of the oldest in the country, and there let the heavenly view across the huddled red roofs of Rye to the marshes and the distant hills and down the winding river Rother to the sea calm your jangling nerves and feed your wounded soul. Bliss. Stop 4. The Library, Arundel Castle, West Sussex.
in West Sussex, you can find the loveliest room in the world. The library at Arundel Castle. I have only been there once a few years ago, in the early years of my research, and I have always loved libraries wherever they may be. But I have never got over this particular library, the silence and serenity of the room, the yearning I felt to stay there forever amongst the books, safe from the world outside, like an anchorite or a Carthusian monk. Home of the Dukes of Norfolk, Arundel Castle is huge, dominating the little town at its gates, and vying with Annick Castle in Northumberland as the second biggest inhabited castle in Britain, after Windsor Castle. Grouped around a Norman keep, the bulk of the castle was restored in the 19th century in Victorian Gothic, and viewed from the south, across the floodplains of the River Arran, with the South Downs behind, the castle creates a magical sight as it rises out of the misty marshes like some fantastical Arthurian vision. Indeed, the view is said to have inspired Mervyn Peake's Castle Gormenghast. The majority of the restoration was done at the time of Henry, the 15th Duke of Norfolk, who inherited Arundel in 1860 at the age of 15. Immensely rich, he grew up into an affable eccentric and would shuffle around town in shabby clothes with a long, unkempt beard. Once, while waiting on the platform at Arundel Station for a friend to arrive, he was summoned by an imperious lady to carry her case. Here, my man, is a penny for you, she said, pressing the coin into his hand. No doubt it's the first honest penny you have ever earned. Indeed it is, ma'am. The Duke murmured in reply. But back to the library. A sumptuous riot of carved mahogany, 120 feet long, divided by Gothic arches hung with plush red velvet curtains, Books line the walls, protected by gold latticework. A balcony runs around the room. The carpet is red and gold. The red upholstered chairs and sofas deep and comfortable. All installed for a visit of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert in 1846. The peace and quiet is all enveloping. There is a sense that all the knowledge and learning you could ever hunger for is here in this room, and the temptation to snuggle up in an alcove and gaze out in contemplation across the marshes, safe behind those great impregnable castle walls, and to never leave, is powerful. I love this library. Oh, to be the Duke of Norfolk. Stop 5. The Quarterdeck of HMS Victory, Portsmouth Historic Dockyard, Hampshire.
Perhaps the most famous warship in history, HMS Victory, Admiral Nelson's flagship at the Battle of Trafalgar, has been berthed in the historic dockyard at Portsmouth since 1922. She occupies part of the oldest dry dock in the world, first built by Henry VII in 1495, and today still serves as the flagship of the first Sea Lord, making her the oldest commissioned warship in the world. A plain brass plaque marks the place on the quarterdeck where Admiral Horatio Nelson was shot down at the height of the Battle of Trafalgar. Here Nelson fell, 21st October 1805, it says. A simple enough memorial, but deeply moving. Nelson was one of life's great heroic characters, audacious, disobedient, rebellious and charismatic, and undoubtedly a superb naval strategist. But it was the Nelson touch, his quality of leadership, based on the love and trust of his men rather than their fear, that made him so successful as a naval commander. He was able to inspire with his courage and example, and his advice to his fellow naval officers before Trafalgar was typical and trenchant. No captain can do very wrong if he places his ship alongside that of the enemy. instantly recognisable in the heat of battle, because he insisted on wearing his full uniform so he could be seen by his men, Nelson was shot through the shoulder by a sniper from the French ship Redoubtable, as the battle was almost won. The bullet pierced his lung and came to rest at the base of his spine, and Nelson was carried down to the lowest deck on the ship, the Orlock deck, where he died three hours later in the arms of his captain Thomas Hardy, having been informed just before he passed away that the victory was won. Thank God I have done my duty, he whispered, content to have personally fulfilled the instruction he had signalled to the fleet before the battle. England expects that every man will do his duty. The Battle of Trafalgar was Britain's greatest ever naval victory, a turning point in the war against Napoleon, and it gave the Royal Navy mastery of the seas for a hundred years. But the celebrations were muted. We do not know whether we should mourn or rejoice. The country has gained the most splendid and decisive victory that has ever graced the naval annals of England, but it has been dearly purchased said the Times. Standing on the spot where such a defining moment in our history occurred, one cannot help but wonder, how heroic would I have been in that situation as the cannon roared and the splinters flew and men screamed and flesh was pulped? Not very heroic at all, I suspect. <laughs> Stop 6. The Pepper Pot, St Catherine's Down, Isle of Wight The Isle of Wight, an England in miniature, is the largest island off the English coast. Towards the southern tip of the island is St Catherine's Down, 
a beautiful bare grassy chalk down, 780 feet high, 236 meters, commanding panoramic views across the island and out to the English Channel over Chale Bay. Crowning the breezy summit is a small octagonal stone tower with a pointed roof, Britain's only surviving medieval lighthouse, and the second oldest lighthouse in the country after the Roman Pharos on the White Cliffs at Dover. The lighthouse was built in the early 14th century by the Lord of the Manor of Chale, Walter de Goderton, on the orders of the Pope, as a penance for Walter finding himself inadvertently in possession of a large number of barrels of fine white wine, plundered from a French ship that had been driven ashore in Chale Bay, a notorious place for shipwrecks. Oh, mon Dieu. The wine was meant for a monastery, and the bibulous abbot was quite understandably outraged when his tipple didn't arrive, demanding that the Pope excommunicate Walter, unless the impertinent rapscallion built a beacon tower and oratory on top of the down, and paid for a priest to tend the light and say prayers for sailors drowned in the bay. The oratory's chapel has gone, but the beacon tower remains and it is exquisite, with the most beautiful proportions and one of the most deeply satisfying buildings to look at. The locals call it the pepper pot, an item of tableware which it does indeed resemble, but for me, with its four stone buttresses or fins, it looks much more like a moon rocket, such as Professor Calculus might have designed for Tintin and Captain Haddock. In the strong sea winds that so often assail St Catherine's Down, the tower appears to tremble, as if about to launch, so much so that one can't help but begin to count down and brace for flames to belch out from the base. Five, four, three, two, one. I hope that when the lighthouse does finally lift off, that I will be there to see it. Well, that concludes our tour of the south of England. In the next episode, we visit the West Country to learn about the Dorset farmer whose enterprise and whose courageous wife made the world a safer place. The landscape in Devon, praised by a Hollywood legend for its abundance of natural beauty. A perfect blend of scenery and sculpture in Cornwall. An enchanted Somerset Coombe that inspired great poetry and the computer age and a prehistoric temple in Wiltshire restored on marmalade. This has been an I Never Knew That production, brought to you by Christopher Wynne and guest stars Rupert Van Sittert and Emma Van Sittert. Find out more at ChristopherWynne'sINeverKnewThat.com and check out the I Never Knew That books available online and at all good bookshops. Thanks for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review 
and join me again next time to discover more tales that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. <laughs>